right. Thanks, Lucas, for leading today, and, and uh, it's good to be back. We uh, had a couple weeks of vacation. We didn't really, we didn't go anywhere. We didn't leave town, or we left town, but we didn't ever leave the peninsula. So, so we've been here, but it's been a good couple of weeks. Good to uh, take a couple of weeks off and, and enjoy everything around. And kind of the funny thing, every now and then I'll have somebody say, yeah, I come up there every July, and I keep coming by the church to see you, and you're never there. You always take vacation during that time. Same reason you take vacation to come up here is the same reason I take vacation is so that, uh, you know, I can do the stuff that's going on around here. So anyway, we, we did that and, and uh, had a good time. And, and uh, so we're going to wrap up Ruth today. And we're in Ruth chapter 4, and as we've been going through Ruth, um, kind of going back, just to go back to the beginning of it all, the book of Ruth takes place during the time period of the Judges. So if you read um, in the book of Judges in the Old Testament, you got uh, after First and Second Chronicles, Joshua, then Judges. You have Joshua in the conquest. Joshua dies. When Joshua dies, um, after leading the people into the promised land, then you have the period of the Judges. And the Judges, um, when we think of Judges, we think, you know, court. Really, they were military leaders, or they were, they were the strong, leading people um, who led the people during this time. But basically, if, if you go into it and you study this time period, really it's, it's one of the darkest periods in the history of Israel. It's just a dark time. It's a time of people turning away from God, people um, falling into uh, just being entrapped by their culture and the things going on around them, turning away from God, seeking um, fulfillment, pleasure, satisfaction, purpose, meaning, whatever you want to throw in there, they were seeking it somewhere other than God. And as they did that, they went further and further away from God. And as they moved further and further away from God, they moved further and further away from his protection and his blessing and, and his purposes for their life. So as this happened, ultimately, one day they'd kind of wake up and go, what in the world have we done? You know, where, where, how did I get to where I am? How did it end up this way? How did my life um, fall apart? Where, where was it? How do I pick up the pieces? And they cry out to God. And God extended grace and mercy to them. And he would send one of these judges. He would call someone out who would be a leader for them. And they would lead them. They would bring them back to where, where God had wanted them to be. So they would move back into this covenant relationship with God. And, and then they would go for a period of time. The judge would die. Um, people would eventually kind of filter away and go without someone to lead them. And, and then they would... <clears throat> perpetuate the cycle so it just goes on and on and on for instance you have the story of Gideon during this time um, and and you see Gideon he's hiding to thresh his grain at night so that they don't get overtaken by their enemies and so forth so so the, these are the types of things that that happen during this time so it's a it's a dark time period and in there there's this famine in Bethlehem and, and biblically when you see famine basically that's that saying that people have turned from God and the blessings of God are no longer on them so God had told the people said look when when you cease to follow me when you turn to other gods when you turn to the things of this world rather than staying in this covenant relationship with me I'm going to close up the skies and it's not going to rain and 
So this was what happens in, in Bethlehem. And so this is where the story takes place. When Elimelech leaves with his family from Bethlehem to go to Moab, we jump into this story of Ruth. So the story of Ruth is, is in here. And in Ruth chapter 4, it says, Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friends, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it. And I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. So we'll stop there. We'll pick it back up in a, in a few minutes. But, but as we come into here, um, the first thing I would say in this passage is unconditional love is risky. It's a risky thing. What Boaz is doing is risky um, to himself. He's willing to risk his lineage to uh, redeem, <clears throat> redeem Ruth. He is willing to risk his property to redeem Elimelech's family, to redeem the name of Elimelech's family. And, and so as you come in here and, and look at it, we, we kind of go, what in the world are they talking about, you know, to perpetuate the name of the dead and, and, um, and his inheritance and so forth? Because in, in our culture, um, we, don't, we don't think this way, but in theirs, this is a huge thing because Elimelech has died. His family, he has left no male heir to pass on his name. So therefore, his, clan, his family group, it's about to die and his memory will be gone forever. So it, it would be like he had never existed in, in their mind. So this is a huge thing. And also... In this, if, if we kind of come back and read back into the story, um, why did this property go anyway? What's going on with this? Obviously, Elimelech had to sell his property in Bethlehem. So things had gotten so bad that he sold his property. And when he left, someone else had bought the property. Now, when you bought property back in that day and time, you didn't actually get the property forever. Like if, if I, we bought our house, it's ours. And... And it, I can sell it to anybody I want to. And then it becomes theirs. And I no longer have any right to it. It'll never go back to me unless I buy it back. But in, in their culture and in Israel, the way it worked was you didn't really sell it. You just sold the proceeds of that property for the next 50-year period or until the next year of Jubilee came. Every 50 years, the property would go back to whom it belonged to begin with. So when the property's divvied up in the very beginning, it stays with these tribes and it goes into these clans and into these families and, and the land would stay within these groups. So if you had to sell your property, 
the person who bought your property, really all they're paying for is how many crops I can get out of this land for the next however many years it is to the next jubilee. If it was 50 years, if it just happened, it'd be 50 years worth of crops. If it was five years, it'd be five years worth of crops. We don't know where it was in that time period, but basically what they're saying is, is look, Elimelech sold the property. He has no heir, and it has to be redeemed. Someone has to redeem this property back into the family and bring it back in. And, and you've got the, the way that it would flesh out. It would be a brother first. If there were no brothers of Elimelech, then it would be one of, uh, one of the, uh, or a son. If there were no sons, it would be a brother. If there were no brothers, it would start going on down and, and work down the line to keep this land in there. So we don't know where Boaz and this other guy are. And, and by the way, he doesn't have a name. He's nameless in the story. So you have Boaz and the Redeemer. So, so here we are in the story. And, and as you come in, so when this Redeemer comes in, the reason all this is important, you're wondering, why is he getting off on all this stuff? It's kind of weird. But, um, but, but the reason is, is because when Boaz has a son, when he fathers a son, or if he fathers a son with Ruth, this son is not perpetuating his family clan. It's going to perpetuate Elimelech. So this son will be the son that will carry on the, the name of Elimelech. So in this way, he is no longer forgotten. His land stays with him. It stays in the family, and it goes there. And, and so he comes in, and, and he begins by, by saying, I'm going to redeem her. So Boaz, he has this property, and he has his own estate, and now he's going to buy this other estate, and he's going to put a financial lot into it, to pay Naomi, to buy it back, to buy the rights to the land and, and coming in. So um, the other guy comes in and says, look, I can't do this. I cannot do this because this will put my estate at risk. This will put my family at risk. Because all of a sudden I'm going to invest a large sum of money to redeem this property. Then at the year of Jubilee, this property will not stay with my family it will go to Elimelech's family. And this son that I bear will not be the, the heir. He will not be the one who carries on my name, but he will inherit some of my property from my estate. So my estate will be diluted. Elimelech's will be built up. And, and this is a risk for me. And, and he just comes in and, and does it in that regard and says, I, I don't want to take the risk. The risk is too great. I'm not going to do this. So Boaz jumps in and says, if you don't, I will. So this is where it's, it's coming in, and um, it's, it's an interesting story. So as, as we look at it, you know, Boaz is, is a man who is willing to take this risk. He loves unconditionally. He is loving well beyond anything that we would normally um, think of. Another good example of that would be the father of the prodigal son. If you, if you go into Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32, this is a great example of someone taking a huge risk. Uh, not the son. The son didn't take a risk. The son, the son was stupid. Um, <clears throat> but the father took a huge risk because in his culture, um, if a son 
turned his back on you and said, I wish that you were dead. I just want, I just want your money. Um, in that, that would be the greatest dishonor that could take place. And that son would, would be dead to the father. He would no longer recognize that son. Nobody in their, in their culture would. He would, be, he would be ostracized. Yet the father, when the son comes back, we see the story. The father is waiting on the son. The father runs to the son. He, he does what is very culturally wrong he puts himself in this position of going to the son and restoring the relationship to the son and redeem basically redeeming the son to bring him back into the family so what the father does culturally everybody looks at him and says you're a nut why are you doing this why would you do this he has dishonored you he is dead to us we would never do this. Yet, it's this story of a father restoring a relationship or redeeming a relationship. And redemption, as, as we come into this, this is what, what's happening in chapter 4 is redemption. And, and redemption is risky. It's a risky thing. When, when we go to do this, there are risks involved, and it always comes at a price. There's a price that goes along with it. So as we come in and we look at this and we look at Boaz and what's going on, he's willing to take the risk. He's willing to pay the price. And, and both of these things are necessary in there. You have to be willing to pay the price. You have to be able to cover the cost. And, and then you have to want to do that. And also to redeem property, you had to be a close relative. You had to be of the same group the same people so Boaz fills these qualities he fills all of these requirements he fulfills them and he redeems the land of Elimelech so he comes in and he redeems this and he says not only will I redeem the land not only do I want to exercise my right as the kinsman redeemer and fulfill this responsibility I am also taking the the wife of Kilion and <clears throat> no, Machlon. I'm taking Machlon's widow and I'm going to perpetuate the name of Elimelech. I will, I will take that responsibility among, uh, upon myself. So <clears throat> um, he comes in and, and he does this. And, and so as, as we come in and look at it all, we, you know, we look at it and go, wow, this was great. This other guy, he was a loser. Why wouldn't he, you know, why wouldn't he do this? Well, it's really simple. The reason he didn't do it is because he counted the cost. He looked at the cost and he said, you know what? This is, this is too great. It's too great for me to jump in here and, and do that. And, and that wasn't abnormal. That's very normal. It's something that, as a matter of fact, any of us today, if we were making a financial decision, we would count the costs. We would look at it and say, okay, What's this going to cost me? What are the ramifications of my decision? How will this affect my family? How will this affect my future? How will this affect um, my ability to pay my bills or whatever it might look like? We would count those costs. As a matter of fact, um, in, in Luke 14, 25 to 33, Jesus said, you know what? You should count the cost. You should count the cost. But, but he pulls it in in a whole different respect. And he says, if you're going to follow me, you have to count the cost. If you're going to be my follower, you have to count the cost. And so he warned the people in that day, if you want to follow me, you have to count 
the cost. So this is something, it's, it's a concept that, that we understand and we think about and we apply it in all different areas of life, but really it boils down to coming down and counting the cost when we look at what does it mean to follow Jesus because there's a cost involved there. Just as Boaz was willing to pay a cost, we look at that cost and go, okay, that's, uh, it, it has a pretty stiff, pretty stiff price tag on it, but he was willing to do that. And we can see that. But when Jesus said, if you want to follow me, you've got to leave everything behind. He said, the price tag is everything. It's everything. You have to put everything behind and turn full on to follow me. And he said, that's the way it is. He said, that's the way it is. If you want to follow me, you have to count the cost. So as we look at that and we look at what Boaz has done here in, in these few verses um, and, and apply that to us today, how do I take that and apply the risks involved in extending unconditional love to other people? How do I do that? How do I count the costs and, and, ex, and, and the risks that are involved in extending unconditional love to the people around me? Because there are people around us that, quite frankly, they're kind of hard to love. I mean, we could all think right off the top of our head, I can think of some people that um, they're difficult to love. They're diff- Maybe another way of putting it is we'd just rather not be around them, right? I mean, we're, let's all be honest. <laughs> and we're in church. We, we No, no, Jesus said that we just love everybody. We love everybody. Well, we do. But the reality is there's some people you just go, here we go again. And how do we extend unconditional love towards those people? Um, and how do we apply that to the risks that are involved in extending unconditional love to others? How, how do I apply these principles to that, counting the costs and so forth? It could be financial costs. It could be relational costs. It could be health-related. Um, it could be any other costs that we personally encounter. It, it could be the stress involved in it. Um, it. It could be the time involved in it. it you know, there, there are many different ways that we invest. There are many different things that we invest. Some of them are very tangible. Some of them are things that are kind of intangible, but we know that they drain us and cause a cost. And how do we do this? How do we apply that to the risks of being able to take the risk involved to extend unconditional love to other people? So then um, we, we come to the next part and it says, now this was the custom in verse seven, it says, now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction. The one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, your witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Machlon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Machlon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers from the gate of his native place. Your witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are your witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah 
who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So, Ruth, so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then, she, then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. May his name be renowned in all Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amenadab. Amenadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. So there's the story as you come in, a lot of names happening there, but uh, the one that you really recognize is David, and, and it's coming down. But um, unconditional love is not only risky, it also puts other people first. When we come into the story, Boaz took responsibility for Elimelech's family, and he takes responsibility for carrying on the family name. He doesn't just um, say, I'm going to make sure that that Ruth and Naomi are okay and, and that they're cared for because that would be the right thing to do. He says, no, I'm going to take care of carrying on the family name. And, and so he wanted to be sure that Elimelech would not die without an heir and, and be forgotten forever from the history of their culture and, and their people. And, and Boaz was willing to put the name of Elimelech before his own name and put his lineage ahead of his and perpetuate that. And, and if you come on and, and look into the story, kind of coming back to the risks, I mean, there's no guarantee that he has one son, much less two. And, and so he comes in and, and he does this. So he is putting Elimelech first. Now, he's not only putting Naomi and Ruth first. He's putting Elimelech and this whole family ahead of his own by fulfilling the kinsman redeemer role. That's what he's doing. He's putting the other people ahead. He's putting one family ahead of his own family. He's putting others ahead of himself. He is counting others as more important than himself. He's doing something that, um, that he's saying redeeming these people is of greater importance than the risk that comes to me. He's, he's putting them first. If we want to come at that and, and look at it from <clears throat> the biblical perspective, and really when we come in and we look at this, this concept of the Redeemer, um, we can look at the simple way to look at it is Jesus is our Redeemer, right? He has redeemed us from sin and <clears throat> destruction and shame. And He has restored us to a right relationship with God. In Philippians 2, 5 through 11, it says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, having been born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by 
He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, hold on to this for a minute and think about that, because when we come to the end, we're going we're gonna to take this thing full circle. Um, when we talk about Boaz and, and what happens between him and Ruth and this son, Obed, who fathers Jesse, who fathers David, but um, but but as we come into this and and look, we look at the cost that Jesus paid. It says Jesus, he humbled himself. He humbled himself to the point of death. He gave up the privileges of of God, the privileges of being God, and became a man. He emptied himself of the privileges of deity and became one of us so that he could redeem us, so that he could be our redeemer. And he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, the most um, despicable way a person could ever die. Totally despised. And it said because he was willing to do that, he has been exalted to the name above all names that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Jesus does this. He counts the cost of redemption. He has counted the cost, and, and as we come into it, we know that unconditional love puts other people first, that it puts the needs of others ahead of our own. And that's what Jesus did. He put our needs ahead of what, he needed. He didn't have any needs. All of his needs were met. He's God. He's got everything. But he put our needs out there. Um, another one last week, Greg talked about loving your neighbor as yourself. This is what this is like. It's when we put the needs of other people first, it is loving our neighbor as ourselves. And he talked about the Good Samaritan, and the Good Samaritan put the injured man's needs above his own needs. He said, take care of him. I will take the risk of caring for him. I will pay for his bills. I will cover his medical costs. Can you imagine going down the road and seeing somebody in an accident and taking them to the hospital and saying, hey, doesn't matter if they have insurance or whatever, I got the cost covered. Whew. I mean, even if you got insurance covering your own costs is going to be pretty steep, right? But this is what the guy does. He says, I will cover the guy's costs. Here it is. This, is, this will pay for that and Greg did a great job on it but putting other people first I mean honestly it's not our first instinct is it it's it's not what we naturally go hey I, I want to put the need of somebody else ahead of my own need I'm more interested in you doing well than I am in me doing well I'm more interested in you getting ahead than me getting ahead uh, it's usually self-preservation that, that is our first instinct. Our first instinct is usually to take care of ourselves. Self-preservation. And as we come in and, and really go back to the story, the other Redeemer, what did he do? And he looked at the situation and said, you know what, I need to take care of myself here. I need to make sure that I preserve what I have. And so that's, that's our normal 
instinct. The problem is, is that it can quickly go downhill from there. It, there's nothing wrong with looking at the situation and going, you know, what are the costs involved? How is this going to affect me? Um, if I make this purchase, if I do this thing, what are, what are the ramifications of that decision? How will it trickle down? How will it affect my ability to provide for my family or whatever that might be? Those aren't bad questions to ask. They're good questions to ask. They're wise But sometimes it can go downhill really fast from there. And then we look at, and we, we look at it from the aspect of, um, I don't want to make any sacrifices. I'm not really concerned. That's their problem. It's not mine. Um, I, <clears throat> if I do that, I won't be able to, participate in this activity or whatever you know it might be I might not be able to buy the new fishing rod or the new coat or um, I might have this sacrifice that I have to make and I don't really want to do that anyway it's not my problem anyway you know what that didn't happen to me it happened to them or if they wouldn't have done this dumb thing over here they wouldn't be in this circumstance why should I help them um and that, that's, um, that's how self-preservation quickly goes downhill. It goes from just making wise decisions to decisions that are self-centered decisions. They're not decisions that are based upon um, being sound. They're decisions based on self and self alone. You see, unconditional is a love that's above human nature. This love, this unconditional love, is, is something that is above human nature, and we don't naturally love other people unconditionally. That's not a natural thing. I mean, as a matter of fact, typically we have relationships, and, and we look at it, and, and the, the most basic human nature thing is, is there's something in that relationship for us. It's like, oh, man. That we're not, I'm not really that selfish, but really, if you think about it, I mean, our relationships are with people that they're similar. We, we have similar interests. We enjoy being with them, um, whatever that might be. And, and we love and care for those people. But people outside of that circle, we're not necessarily always just drawn to. And this is something that, that as you see in here, Boaz, he doesn't know Ruth. He doesn't know her at all. He knew her father-in-law. But he had no connect to her. But he sees that she's caring for his family member's widow. And then he responds to her. And he sees her. And he sees what she's doing. So you see the story unfold in that. And, and how can he do this? We love other people. And we're able to do this not on our own, but because Jesus loved us first. He is the one that enables us to. Jesus is the one that gives us the ability to love people unconditionally, to love people who are unlovable. And in this case, Ruth was not unlovable. Um, she was probably a beautiful woman. He was attracted to her. He saw her in the field. We, we see you know, some things in there that would make us go, oh, okay, he's saying, wow, who's this pretty young girl out in the field? Um, what, what is she doing? She's been here all day. Wow, she's a hard worker. I'm attracted to her. Um, 
But but 1 John 4.19 says we love because he first loved us. We're able to love. We are able to extend covenant love to other people. We're able to extend unconditional love to other people because Jesus loved us first. He has enabled us to do that. He has redeemed us from ourselves. He has redeemed us from sin and shame. He has redeemed us from our brokenness. And he has restored us to what he created us to be as people created in his image and given us this ability to love unconditionally. Jesus redeemed us from sin. He was able to pay the price because he was the sinless son of God. He had never sinned, so he was able to be the sacrifice for our sin. He was able to take the punishment of our sin upon himself, and he was able to take our sin and shame. And he was willing, and he became one of us in order to do that. He became like us without sin so that he could redeem us. He became a man. God became a man so that he could do that. He became our redeemer and he calls us to follow him. So how do we do this? How do we put other people first in a culture that's driven by self-sufficiency? I mean, really, when you come in, everything in our culture, in, in the American culture, is, is we, are, we, we admire the self-made person. We admire the person who pulls themselves up by them bootstraps. We, we admire the individualist. But how do we put other people first when everything in our culture is built upon self-sufficiency. How do we do that? How do we put the needs of other people ahead of our own in, in this type of culture? Because this is what unconditional love is. This is the, the word that's used, the biblical word used is hesed. Hesed is the, is the Hebrew word in this that means the covenant love of God, the unconditional love of God that's given to us. And ultimately, unconditional love is the story of God. That is the story of God. As, as we come in and, and look at the story of Ruth, we're seeing the story of unconditional love as it plays out here. But really, it's just a little picture of who God is. It's a picture of God and the lineage of Boaz leads to David and it ultimately leads to Jesus. And this is how the story ends. It ends, it says, Boaz becomes the father of Obed. Obed has a son named Jesse. And if you know all those names in the Old Testament, you know that Jesse, the bells start going ding, 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 ding. Jesse, oh yeah, Jesse had seven sons. And the youngest son was David. And, and David was the little runt. He was, you know, he was the guy that they didn't even bring in when they were saying, who's, who's going to be anointed here? And, and David becomes the, uh, the father of the nation. As we come in, as a matter of fact, the big figure in all of the Old Testament, really, you could really say it's David. It is David. David is the star. He is the star player in the act of Israel in the Old Testament. And you've got some other big names in there. I'm not saying, you know, Moses, Abraham, um, Father Abraham, and so forth. But, but if you go to Israel today and you look at their flag, you know who's on their flag? The star of David. Not Abraham, not Moses, is to starve David. Jerusalem, the city of David. 
David. He is a big name. So when you come in in Ruth and you see that he becomes the father of David, the last, the last thing, the last phrase in, in the whole thing, Obed father Jesse and Jesse father David. I mean, everybody, boom, the lights, you know, the light bulb bop, pops right on. And you see this story is huge. This is big. What has happened is very big. So as we come in, this is a lineage that endured. And it will always endure. Because if you go into Matthew and you go into Luke, you know what you're going to read? You're going to read the lineage of Jesus. And you know who you're going to see in that lineage? You're going to see Ruth. You're going to see David. You'll see Obed, Jesse, and, and all of these other names. So you come in. This is the, the story of God. And Boaz joyfully exhibits Hesed and takes the risk of being a kinsman redeemer and, and he risks his own lineage and his own estate to redeem Ruth and to take her as his wife. And, and he's excited to do this. He's excited to do it. I mean, when, when you come into all of the story, and we could, we could have taken days on this. I mean, if you read, there, it's, it's a fascinating story. But as you really look at it, and, and you look at how the story builds up, you know, Ruth, uh, chapter 3 ends with Boaz telling Ruth, look, I'm, I'm going to take care of this. He goes down. He goes into town. Instead of going home, he doesn't even go home. I mean, most people, they come in and they go straight home. Boaz doesn't even bother to go home. He doesn't change clothes. He doesn't anything. He goes straight to the city gates. He sits down at the city gates and he waits. And just so happens that the other guy that he's looking for comes through and he says, hey, come over here. He gathers 10 other people. They gather them in the city gate. The city gate is where you would hold all of your your big things. and, And the people would come in and they would have these benches that were plastered around where they could all sit down and they would make this decision it would be a legal decision in town that everybody would see and know and he takes care of everything and he joyfully takes this and and he begins to lay it out to the other guy and you kind of see it build up you think what's going to happen what's going to happen to Ruth is she going to have to marry this stranger is she going to marry Boaz because we want her to marry Boaz because this is the way the story's going and and then you're looking at you're going oh no you know she's gonna marry this other guy well we really know the end of the story but you know the first time you read it through as you're reading it through just think about it you're reading through and and you're looking at it going, what in the world's going to happen here? I mean, I thought this was supposed to be Boaz and Ruth, and all of a sudden there's this other guy, and this other guy is the guy that's entitled to her, and, and he's going to take her to be his wife, and what's up with that? And then the guy says, whoa, 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 whoa. And Boaz, he lays it out and goes, hey, here's the deal. And you can think the guy's saying, man, this is my lucky day. I'm going to get all this land. I'm going to get this estate. It's coming in. I get to buy it. It's on the cheap, and everything's there. And then all of a sudden he goes, but there's a catch you got to take Ruth. He says, oh, I'm out. And, and so there it is. He comes in, and, and Boaz, he's, he's happy to do it. He is very, very happy to do that. And, and so we, we see that the other guy, he's not willing to do this. He's not a bad guy. I mean, he's not really portrayed as being evil or wicked or anything. He's just, he's just a normal guy. And um, he wasn't even necessarily selfish. I mean, we, we just don't know. We don't really know much about him. But, um, but he did come in. He made, he made an informed decision. He made a decision based on the costs and the benefits to his own family. But Boaz, on the other hand, what Boaz does is he takes and makes a decision that's based on 
um, unconditional love. He exhibits unconditional love or extraordinary love as he comes in and does this. So as we come in and, and look at this, we see Boaz saying, I will take her to be my wife. I will take her to be my wife, regardless of the cost. And this is extraordinary. This is an extraordinary thing that this man does. And it's the type of love that causes us to pause. It's the type of love that causes us to stop and, and take stock in what's going on because it's beyond normal. It's not normal. What he does isn't the normal thing. What the other guy does is very normal. It's very normal. It was normal in their culture. It's normal in our culture. It's normal across cultures. It's just normal human nature. We look at things and, and we see, you know, what, what is the cost? And to step beyond that is amazing. And as you come in, the people, they bless Boaz and Ruth in this as as the people see it you see what what happens he says I'm, I'm going to do this and it says your witnesses today and it says then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said we are witnesses may the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah who together built up the house of Israel I mean Rachel and Leah those are the wives of Jacob who have the 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel. So you've got that going on. And, and then it says, And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. So as you come in of the house of Judah, and, and you know, may, may this happen here. So th these are big names that, that come in. And it brought out the best in the crowd. And Ruth was no longer seen as the Moabitess. Ruth was now firmly anchored in the story of God. Ruth all of a sudden becomes firmly anchored in the story of God, the story of God that we read today, the story of God that's been passed down to us today. And she is from the house of David. And, and then this son that's going to come from the house of David, God promises David, you will always have someone on the throne. Well, who is that? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. So we see the story of God being played out and, and coming to us. And in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, the, the writer puts, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross you see as Boaz joyfully takes Ruth to be his wife Jesus joyfully took our sin and shame he did it for the joy that was set before him he did it not thinking of what is it costing me but what will it bring what will it do what will it accomplish so as we come and, and look at that, he despised the shame and he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So if, if we come in and we wrap it all up, you may wonder, you know, how's my life make a difference? I mean, how, how am I making a difference? Or maybe you wonder, you know what, will my life ever make a difference? Am I ever going to make a difference? I mean, or maybe... You might look at it and say, you know what? If I look at my past, how can I ever overcome that? 
Well, let's talk about Ruth for a minute. Ruth was Moabite. The Moabites weren't even allowed to come in to worship God. Down to the 10th generation. Because they refused to allow God's people to come through during the Exodus. The Moabites come from a very, very godless society. Yet, this Moabite was not only welcomed into Bethlehem, she was welcomed into the house of Israel, and she became the great-grandmother of David, the king, the greatest king that the people ever knew. So, as we look at the story of Ruth, we see even in the worst of circumstances, even when our circumstances have come to the very bottom, even when life has fallen apart to the depths of where it can fall, the worst things that can happen, that um, God is still at work. God is still loving us. God is still extending unconditional love. God is still working in our circumstances. God is still working in the midst of brokenness. God is still working to draw people to himself. And Ruth, I'm sure that Ruth had a lot of difficult years. I mean, this story, this this book of Ruth that we can read in five minutes takes place over ten years of time. Ten years is a long time. Ten years isn't as long to me as it used to be. (laughs) But but, uh, for some of you in here, ten years is over half of your life. So that's a long time. It's like a sixth of mine. So, you know, it's not quite as much. It's like 15%. But, um, but when you look at it being over half, it's a long time. It's a long time. And she probably wondered. She probably wondered a lot of times, why did this happen to me? How did I get married into this family of foreigners And now I've got this mother-in-law that really I'm obligated to take care of. I can't turn my back on her. I can't do it. She welcomed me into into her family. She's loved me. And I love her. She has nothing to offer me. And, and, And Naomi even said as much. She said, look, you just need to go back. I don't have anything to offer you. As a matter of fact, all I have to offer you is nothing. An end. And Ruth says, no, I, I won't do that. So she does. She, she goes and, and she, she's um, in that. And we look at her story and, and we can look at it through the lens of history. And in a few moments, glance at years of her life. And see how it turned out. Go, wow, it turned out amazing for her, didn't it? Turned out amazing. And the interesting part about it is, Ruth doesn't even live to see the biggest part of her story. She has no clue. Ruth had no, she died with no clue, no clue that Obed would father Jesse. And maybe she saw Jesse. Maybe she knew Jesse. Maybe she held Jesse on her lap. 
And maybe she even saw Jesse have some sons. Maybe she even knew David. I don't know. You know, we, we don't really know if she lived that long or not. Good chance she didn't. But even at that, hands down, she wasn't there when David was put on the throne. She wouldn't have lived that long. And she certainly didn't live long enough to see everything play out over the next thousand years and see Jesus but we study her story today and we're redeemed by Jesus and we look at it and we see one little piece of the story we see one person loving with unconditional love and trusting others so as we come in and look at our story, and you look at your story today, and you wonder, you know, what, what, what's, what's happening? Is there any future for me? I mean, do I have any potential? Yeah. Potential beyond imagination. You see, all that we have to do is step into the story of God. And when we step into the story of God, God does things that are beyond our imagination. Or, as the scriptures say, now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly, beyond all that we could ask or imagine, to him be all the glory. You see, it's, it's the story of God, and that's what Ruth is. It's just a little picture of it. So, as <clears throat> we come in, and we look at our story and we wonder, am I going to make a difference? You know what? When we walk with God, we always make a difference. When we're faithful to God, we are always making a difference. When we love unconditionally, we are making a difference. We may not see it play out in our lifetimes, but in the grand scheme of it all, the potential is off the charts. Because that's the God that we serve. So as we wrap up Ruth, how are you going to love God or how are you going to love others unconditionally and trust God to do the rest? How are you going to love other people unconditionally and trust God to do the rest? How can you let this play out in your life? Let's pray. Father, we come before you today and thank you for the blessings that you've given to us. We thank you for your love for us even though we don't deserve it. We thank you for the grace and the mercy that you've poured out on us through your son, Jesus, and the hope that we have in him. And Father, we pray that you would help us to love other people unconditionally, to love the way that you've loved us, to show people the grace and the mercy of Jesus through the way that we extend grace and mercy to them. Father, help us to grow in our love for you and our desire for you. And prepare us, Father, for the things that you want to do in our lives. And help us, Lord, in, in the midst of our struggles to never lose sight of who you are and the promises that you've made to us. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as Lucas leads us? And, and looking at, so we've had the last couple of weeks, we've taken vacation. We didn't go, we didn't leave the peninsula, so we didn't go out of state or anything like that. But we've just been around here. 
enjoying the area and having a good time. And so now we're back and we're going to wrap everything up. I know uh, last week we watched online and, and the, uh, so the internet, we finally got, you know, we've been going through this process of getting everything upgraded here since all this coronavirus stuff and getting the, up, uh, the, the last piece that we had to get was our internet speed up because we just could not get internet speed through our, um, through ACS. They don't, the internet service here is really, really slow. So we finally upgraded. They were supposed to come out and put a thing on to get us to the tower. But when they came out in June, they said, well, actually, we can't see the tower from here. So you need to call these people. We can see their tower. So that was another month to wait. You know, it just kept getting pushed back and pushed back and pushed back. And then it it came in last week and and, uh, they did some other stuff and we moved move some stuff, move some equipment around or whatever. And anyway, it, uh, it threw everything off. So Greg, he's, he's pretty sharp. So he was able to get it to work on, on his uh, phone. But, um, anyway, it's all back up and running now and hopefully we'll have everything fixed and, and, uh, put together here pretty quick. But, uh, I thought about it and I thought, you know, well, that's a good week to be gone. Um, you know, and, uh, you know, kind of let Greg do that trial by fire. And, uh, that's what he said. I was talking to him last night. He goes, oh yeah, you figure, you know, the, it would happen on a Thursday, the end of the week. And, and when you're gone, because you're the one that knows about all that stuff and, you know, so, oh, well, that's the way it works. So anyway, uh, good time to be gone. Good time to be back because it's all working again. So, you know, welcome to everybody online and we got all that going, but we're in Ruth chapter 4, and over the last few weeks, we've been talking about unconditional love, because the book of Ruth really blows that out and talks about what unconditional love looks like, how that fleshes out, and if you come back and, and go into the time period of the book of Ruth, it's the, the time of the judges, so if you go back in the history of Israel, if you, if you know your history of Israel, Judges happens right after uh, Moses and, and Joshua. They come, they, they lead the people out of Egypt, they come into the promised land, they conquer the land, and then Joshua dies. When Joshua dies, you have the period of the Judges. So it's the book of Judges happens, right, when Joshua dies. And, and so at the end of the book of Joshua begins the book of Judges, and Judges goes and then it runs and you come in to from from there you you pop in to the rest of of the story so you come in and from there it goes from Samuel to Saul to David and and all of the kings of Israel all the way to the fall of Jerusalem so you come in and and go through that but the period of judges was the time where it said basically everybody just did whatever they thought was right it was, it was a time where everybody did what they saw fit in their own eyes. That's how the book of Judges ends. It just says everybody did whatever they thought they could do. Whatever they could get away with, they figured they could do. So that's the way that, that people lived there. There was no right, no wrong. It was just kind of this thing. And, and so what you see in the history in the book of Judges, it's really the dark period in, in the Old Testament. It's a dark period in the history of Israel. And, and so as you come in, what would happen is, is the people, they would just kind of drift away from God, drift away from God, drift away from God. And, and the further and further they drifted from God, 
the worse and worse and worse um, things got. And, and eventually um, they, they would leave God, leave the blessings of God, the protection of God, and they would be conquered by their enemies. When they were conquered by their enemies, eventually when, when they were having to hide at, the, at night, like you read Gideon, you know, he's hiding at night and threshing his grain so that his, the enemies won't come and steal his grain and, and so forth. Um, eventually they cry out to God and say, you know what? How could we have been so foolish? Help us, deliver us. And God, in his grace and mercy, would send a deliverer. And, and they, they were called the judges. They were military leaders. They were leaders who would come in and lead the people. And they would bring them out of their captivity to the people. Or, or they would free them from their oppressors. And these, these uh, judges would lead them. So they would lead them, and so things would come back, and they would get better, and they would be good for a period of time. Then the judge would die, and the whole cycle would start over again. So they wouldn't have any direction, and, and they would just kind of drift away and do whatever they saw fit. And then eventually the, things would all fall apart. The you know Life had fallen apart, and they'd cry out to God, and God in his grace and mercy would send another judge, another person to deliver them, to lead them, and, and so forth. So that's, that's how it looks. So the book of Ruth is a little slice in time, a, t- a little 10 year or so slice in time during this period of the judges. So in this book of Ruth, we see in Bethlehem, there's a famine and famine is um, one of the one of the triggers. If you look at it, you say, you know what, if it hasn't rained, there's no crop coming in or anything. It's because the blessing of God has departed from the land. So God said, when when you leave me, if you fail to follow me, if you break the covenant that we have, he said, I'm going to close up the skies and it's not going to rain. And so this is what's happened. So they have come to this point. So Elimelech and his family leave and go to Moabite. And this is where we see the story of Ruth begin to unfold. And, and last time when we picked it up, it, was, um, it had come down to Boaz and Ruth. And, and Ruth had asked Boaz to marry him. Boaz said, I would love to do that, but there's somebody who is a closer redeemer than me. He has the first rights to your property, and we're going to talk about this in a few moments, but I have to go talk to him. So Boaz said, I'll take care of this. And so here we are in Ruth chapter 4, and it says, Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. So the city gates, he'd gone to the city gates of Bethlehem, and in the city gates, they would have these gates, they would have some benches that were plastered in there where they could all sit, and that's where they would take care of all of the legal business going on in town. They would be taken there by the elders of the town, and they would do this. So they sat down, and, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took 10 men of the elders of the city. So he gets witnesses to to witness what's about to take place. And he said, sit down here. So they sat down. So they sit on these benches at the city gates. And then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, 
You also require Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. So we're going to stop right there and and, and we'll pick it back up in a minute. But the first thing I would say is that, um, that as we come in and look at this, Um, the first thing that we see happening here is that Boaz, he goes and and he does what he says he's going to do, and then he takes a risk. Unconditional love is risky. As we look at unconditional love and wrap it all up, there's a risk that he is taking here as, as the story begins to come in. Boaz is willing to risk his lineage and his property to redeem Elimelech's family. It's not just about Ruth and the bride here. Now he's going to redeem this property and and to restore the lineage of Elimelech. So what happens is is that the, the property that was Elimelech's, Elimelech, when he left Bethlehem, he's obviously sold the rights to this property. So he sold the rights to the property to someone else because there's a famine, he's out of bread, he's out of food, he's at, at his wit's end. I mean, economically, he's crushed. So he, the last thing he has to sell is his land. So he sells his land. And, and we think about that and we think, well, if we sell it, it's done, it's over with, it's mine no more. No, not in Israel. In Israel, you didn't really sell the title to the land. What you sold was the number of crops until the next year of Jubilee. So we don't know how long that would be, but but every 50 years in Israel, the land would return to its original owners, the way that it was broken down in the very beginning. So when, when you bought the land at the end of 50 years, it would go back so that that family, that clan, they would have their property, their family holdings. So it would be there. And we've talked about the clan over the last few weeks and the importance of it in, in the history. But, but as we come in, so... Um, obviously they've sold this and, and now he's coming and saying, okay, you're a kinsman redeemer. Now remember the kinsman redeemer, he was the one to protect the family, to protect the holdings of the family, to protect the rights of the family, to hold the clan together. And so he says, you are the nearest redeemer of this person. So if Elimelech had died and he had no sons, then the land would go to one of his brothers. If it didn't go, if he didn't have any brothers, then it would start breaking out on further out into the family. But but you see the way it works is it stayed in the family. So it would go to the next nearest of kin, the way however that will work out. We don't know exactly where Boaz and this other guy fall in the pecking order. They're not brothers, but somehow they're in there and in this. So they're in this. So the the redeemer that he's talking about, the kinsman redeemer, um, Boaz tells him, says, look, you're next in line. So you need to buy it. Buy it. And also, and the guy says, man, I'll buy it. My, this is my lucky day. I'm going to get this land. It's great property. Um, I'm going to be able to uh, purchase it. It'll come into my inheritance and, and it will help my family out. We'll have bigger holdings. We'll have bigger crops, a bigger farm. Everything's greater. And, and it sounds like, you know, in the back of his mind, he's probably thinking, man, this is my lucky day. And, uh, and then Boaz says, okay, that's great. Um, by the way, along with the property comes Ruth so that you can carry on the name of the dead, of Elimelech. And that's a whole different game. This throws a lot of risk 
in, into, the, into the equation because ultimately what's going to happen here now is he said, first of all, your firstborn son, he's not carrying on your lineage. He's carrying on the lineage of Elimelech. So your firstborn son with Ruth will get all of that property at the year of Jubilee. It becomes his. It's not yours. It doesn't go down to your sons. But by the way, he also is your son. So he's also going to get part of your inheritance. So your inheritance is going to be diluted and his is going to be built up. So you, you need to understand this. And, and so the guy, he looks at it and he begins to count the cost. He thinks, you know what? First of all, I might only have one son. I might not have two sons or three sons or four sons. I might only have one and my name might disappear. My name might not be perpetuated in Israel. This is a huge thing. In their culture, for you to die without an heir means that you are lost to history. You, you no longer exist. It's as if you're gone and, and you were never there because you had not left anything to perpetuate your name. It's, it's a different culture and, and a different understanding for us. So the guy comes at it and he says, you know what? I can't do that. I can't risk it. It's too risky to do that. And by the way, that's, that's not a, it's, he's not a bad guy for saying that. I mean, he just sat there and looked at it and said, you know what? There's a lot of risk involved here. This puts my family at risk. This puts my property at risk. This puts my um, economic well-being at risk because it's going to cost me money to do this and, and I'm not going to get a return on it. So he just says, I can't do it. I can't do that. What he says is, he said, take my right of redemption yourself for I cannot redeem it lest I impair my own inheritance. I can't do that. I won't put my family at risk to do this. So when, when we come in, the, the first thing to, to look at is that this unconditional love that, that we've been talking about that Boaz is, is expressing, that he has expressed to Ruth and to Naomi throughout this little short book, it's a risky thing. It involves taking risk and coming at it. Another example of that would be the prodigal son in Luke 15, verses 11 through 32. It's a great example of a father who risks his reputation in order to restore a relationship with his son. In that culture, um, if a son had, had said, I'm leaving the family, I want my money, I don't care if you're alive or dead, you'd be better off to me to be dead. I just want what's mine so I can go and live life while I'm young and have fun. And, and so he goes off and everybody in the culture considered that son dead. And the father would consider the son dead. And, and they would say, you are no longer a part of our family. You've chosen to leave the family. You've told us that, that you don't want to be a part of us. And that would be a severe, um, a severe no-no in their culture. I mean, it'd be a no-no in any culture, right? I mean, that's kind of, that'd be really bad to say something like that. But, but basically in that, it, he would say, um, we, will no longer, we will no longer acknowledge you as even being alive anymore in our culture because you have dishonored your father. And that was uh, uh, an unpardonable thing to do in that culture. But when the son takes the, the inheritance and he squanders the inheritance and then he's starving, he thinks, you know what? Well, maybe at least, maybe at least if I go back, my daddy will give me a job and I can work as one of his servants. He said, I'll never be a son again. I blew that one. But maybe, maybe, maybe 
I can just work there because I'm eating the pig's food here and at least I can get a, a square meal as one of his servants and goes back. And we see in the story, the father is waiting and watching for him. And then the father, he runs towards him, which is totally, it's, it's a very unhonorable thing for him to do. He is, he is violating their cultural norms and, and throwing himself out there. And what he's saying is, is I am bringing this son back in. I'm restoring this broken relationship. I am going to redeem him from his brokenness. And, and so he is willing to pay the price. His father is willing to take this risk, to risk his reputation, to restore the relationship that he had with his son. And, and if we look at it and we come in and we talk about redemption, redemption, and, and this is what's taking place here, redemption is always risky. It always comes with a risk. There's a risk involved and it always comes at a price. And the redeemer, so as we come in here and we look at the kinsman redeemer, he has to be able to cover the cost. He has to be able to pay the price of redemption and he has to be willing to to pay the price of redemption. He has to not only have the money, but he has to be willing to do it. And he also has to be a close relative as we come in and we look at that. So Boaz, he fills all three of these. The other man did as well. And, and he was closer in kin than Boaz was, but he was unwilling to do that. So Boaz fills all three of these qualifications and he goes and redeems the land of Elimelech and, and so he has done this, and he is well aware of the cost, but he loves unconditionally. He is loving Ruth. He is loving Naomi. He is loving his family, his extended family, at great cost to himself. And he has counted this cost, and he's willing to do what is necessary to do that. Um, in Luke 14, verses 25 to 33, Jesus warned us, said, if you want to follow me, you need to count the cost. There's a cost involved in following me. So as, as we come in and, and look at that and, and talk about the, the thing of, <clears throat> of loving others unconditionally, how do we apply that to the risks involved in extending unconditional love to others? How do I apply that in my life today as I extend unconditional love to other people? What do I do when I look at the risks involved in that? There, there could be um, any number of, of risks involved to love someone unconditionally. It could be a financial risk. It could be a relational risk. It could be a health-related risk. Um, it, it could be time, any number of things. There, there are all kinds of things that it takes when we talk about um, <clears throat> loving someone unconditionally or the costs that, that are um, involved in that. But, but we are going to personally encounter those and, and they are risky. And, and then you throw in on top of that, sometimes... It's just kind of hard to love people, isn't it? I mean, there's some people that they're difficult to love. Nobody, man, the first service, everybody said, yeah, that's exactly right. You guys are holy. Um, and, uh, you know, but, uh, you know, it's just the truth, right? There's some people who are just not very lovable. And it's risky to love them unconditionally. It's risky to love someone. And, and we talked about this thing of unconditional love. Unconditional love means that I'm loving someone without expecting anything in return. I'm not loving them because I'm going to get something out of them. 
or from the relationship. I'm loving them simply because they are another human being created in the image of God and they deserve to be loved. So it's that kind of love and it's a risky thing because sometimes people will take advantage of that. So it comes in and looks at it. So we, we have to understand through this story and seeing it, Boaz took a risk here and it was a risk of loving someone unconditionally. And then the, uh, the second thing is that unconditional love puts other people first. It puts others first. So in verse 7, he picks it up and he says, Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, Buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Machlon and also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Machlon, I bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. Your witnesses this day. So as you come in is uh, the next thing, unconditional love. It puts other people first. This is what Boaz is doing. He is taking responsibility for Elimelech's family and carrying on their name. He is putting the name of Elimelech ahead of his own. So as we've already talked about, the, to die without an heir is to be lost to history in, in their mind. It would be to be lost to all, all knowledge of you and everything, you'd just be gone forever. And Boaz was willing to put the name of Elimelech ahead of his own name and his own lineage in order to fulfill that. So he came into it knowing he may, he may only have one son. He's an old guy. He might not have any sons. He, uh, he might uh, have multiple sons and then have to divide his inheritance, whatever that might be. But by fulfilling the role of the kinsman redeemer, he was putting the interests of the house of Elimelech ahead of his own. So he's putting the interests of someone else ahead of his own interests. So he's putting someone else first. And as we look at that and, and we come in, he comes in and he says, you know, in, in and uh, you take the sandal and all that weird stuff in there, and we could go off on that rabbit trail for a while. But, uh, you know, it's just that's, that's the way that they negotiated a deal, and that's the way they, you know, signed and notarized the papers, so to speak. But, um, <clears throat> but anyway, um, as, as we come in and, and we look at this, and, and we look at redemption and the cost involved um, in, in Philippians 2, 5 through 11, the, the scriptures say, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, through, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equity with equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, as we come in and we talk about redemption, Jesus is the ultimate redeemer. 
I mean, when we talk about redemption, it's all going to come back to Jesus. And, and as we look at this little story of Ruth and Boaz, we see unconditional love, and, and that would be the theme, the big theme of the book of loving someone unconditionally. And that's what God has offered to us is unconditional love. God loves us not because of what we do. He loves us because he created us in his image. We are loved based on Christ Jesus, not on us, not based on our body of work, but on the work that Christ did and what Christ did for us on the cross. When he died, he took our sin and shame on himself and gave us his righteousness. He offered it to us when we turn to follow him. So we see this and we see this this attitude and this is what um, what what the writer of uh, Philippians, what Paul, he, he says, you know, he says, put others first. This is what Jesus did. He didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't hang on to his privileges as God. He emptied himself of those and he became a man and he humbled himself. He humbled himself down to the point of dying the most brutal, um, <clears throat> shameful death that a human being could die in that culture and in that day and probably even to this day. And, and he did that. And he became a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And it says, therefore, God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. So that's that's the, the story and that's the picture of the cost and, and the cost of unconditional love. Last week, Greg preached on loving your neighbor as you love yourself. And, and he talked about the good Samaritan and how he put the injured man's needs above his own. And, and that's a great picture of the cost of unconditional love. This guy didn't love the guy because he knew him, because he could get something from him. He loved him because he was a human being, created in the image of God, and he cared about him. And so he just went and did it, and he paid his bills. He drops him off at the hotel, says, look, here's, this covers costs. If there's anything more, I'll pay it. It would be like going down the road, seeing somebody on the side of the road in a wreck or something, picking them up, driving them to the hospital and saying, hey, here's my card. Charge it to me. That was the type of love that, that was being, is putting other people first. And that's not typically our first instinct. That's not the normal way that any of us operate. We don't normally think and look and go, oh, what can I do so that he can win? What can I do so that she can, can get better? That's not the normal way that we think because we don't think in this term of unconditional love. Typically, it's um, usually self-preservation more that, that we think about. We think about, you know what, how is this going to affect me? What's it going to do? We're Honestly, we're probably a lot more like the Redeemer than we want to admit because that's human nature. Human nature says, I look at things and say, what, what is this going to do to me? What is it going to cost me? How am I going to um, be affected by it? If I <clears throat> spend this, is it going to jeopardize my financial status or my financial abilities or whatever that might be? Or if, if, um, if I enter into this relationship, how are people going to view me? or any number of things. We come into a lot of different things as, as we look at that, but, but we typically come in um, with a mindset of what, what is this going to 
How is this going to affect me? And that can be something that goes downhill very quickly. It can move from, I'm just taking care and making wise decisions to, I've become self-centered, and I really don't care about other people. All I care about is me. And, and so it's, it's easy to move from, from the one thing, because you see, the, the other Redeemer, he's not a bad guy. He's not presented as, as an evil, wicked, nasty guy. He's just a guy who, who comes in and, and he surveys the results, and he, and he looks at it and goes, you know what, this is a risky move, and, and I don't feel comfortable with this risk. And probably any of us in the room could look at that and say, you know what, I, I make decisions that way. Frequently, I frequently look at a decision and I come out and say, you know what, what is the risk involved? Am I, can I tolerate the risk? Am I comfortable with the risk? But that can move into something that's totally different. And, and, and into a total self-centered, self-absorbed place. So we have to be careful not to do that. And, and as we look and we see covenant love, Hesed love, God's love, and we see that is what God wants us to emulate and to do, we see that that is the way that we protect ourselves from following, falling off into the abyss of self-centeredness and, and moving to where we live these lives where we are impacting people in a positive way. So unconditional love, it's a love that's above human nature. It's not normal for us. It's not what we normally do, but we're able to do that because Jesus loved us first. In, in 1 John 4, 9, it says, we love because he first loved us. We loved because he first loved us. So we're able to do that because Jesus has redeemed us from sin. He has restored us to what God created us to be. He could pay that price. He was willing to pay that price and he became one of us to do so that he could do that. He is the ultimate kinsman redeemer and he calls us to follow him. So as we are called to follow him, the, the question becomes, how do I put others first in a culture that's driven by self-sufficiency and self-centeredness? How do I put the needs and, and the, the interests of others first? How can I exhibit this covenant love or unconditional love towards others? How am I able to do that in a way that honors and, and glorifies God in a culture that doesn't necessarily value that? And then the final thing coming in is, as we come in to... Uh, the verses 11 to the conclusion or verse uh, 13 to the conclusion of the book it says so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son then the women said to Naomi blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer and may his name be renowned in Israel he shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher in your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Listen to this. They just said, you know what? Ruth, the Moabitess, she's more valuable to you than seven sons. Seven sons in that culture was the peak of, of blessing from God. If you had seven sons, you had it made. I mean, that, that was a big deal. Now, in our culture, you may think if you got seven boys, you're going to be at your wit's end, Right? That was seven boys to work the field. That was seven boys to take care of you when you got old. That was seven boys. That was an important thing. That was an important thing. Seven boys a day, they'll wear you out. 
But, uh, but it was a different time. It was an agricultural um, <clears throat> culture and, and so forth. So he says, she is worth more to you than seven sons. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Amenadab, Amenadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. So as you come in here and you look, the bottom line is unconditional love is the story of God. That is the story of God. That's what God has done. If you read through the Bible and you read through the scriptures, that's the thing you see. You see the covenant love of God being extended to us. It culminates in Jesus on the cross and what he did for us. That's the the ultimate picture of unconditional love. That is the picture beyond all pictures. And the lineage of Boaz leads to David and ultimately to Jesus. You see, as as we come in and and you go today and and you look at this, you you go back and and in this time, this is probably... um, it's probably 3,200 years ago. So 3,200 years ago, about 1,200 BC, somewhere about that time, is where Ruth and, and Boaz are in this situation here, and, and this takes place. If you go back into that day and time, they didn't know anything that we know. They're 1,200 years before the birth of Christ. She is the great-grandmother of King David. She may or may not even be alive when he's born. But, but as you go back there, the lineage of Boaz leads to David and ultimately to Jesus. You see, if, if you go and, and you begin to look and, and you look at the, the story of God and you look at what happens in the story of God, the things that happen in the story of God are the things that last forever. The things that happen in the story of God are the things that are of eternal value. If you go over to Israel today, for instance, and you look at their flag, what's on their flag? The star of David the great-grandson of Ruth. So you come in, and, and this is a lineage. When you talk about perpetuating a lineage, man, he did a bang-up job, didn't he? I mean, he really, if you look at it and you look at what happened in their lives as, as they just lived out in this little insignificant town in Bethlehem and they followed God and they loved unconditionally and they followed God and she loved God unconditionally and she followed when, when there was nothing in it for her. You see something amazing taking place. You see something that, that is beyond anything that they ever Imagine, you see, it's a lineage that endured and it's always going to endure. It will always endure through Jesus. And Boaz joyfully exhibited Hesed and he took the risk to his own lineage and to his own estate to redeem Ruth and to take her as his wife. And and as we look at it, the, the other redeemer wasn't willing to do that. And he wasn't willing to put the other family ahead of his own. 
He wasn't willing to do these things. And, and it's not because he was a bad guy. It wasn't because he was necessarily even selfish. It, it's just he, he made this decision based on the benefits to his own family. He didn't think about anything else when he comes in there. But Boaz, on the other hand, Boaz comes in and, and does things differently. He um, exhibited unconditional love to Naomi. And that's what we see in him as he comes in. It, it was extraordinary. It's the type of love that causes us to pause. It's, it's the type of love that when we see it, we take it in because it's beyond normal for us. It's not normal in our culture, even here today. When we see someone who loves that way, we stop. And we're attracted to it. And we're drawn to it. Just like Boaz was drawn to Ruth, he's drawn to her as he comes to his field. If you go back in chapter 2, you see he comes into the field and, and he sees this young woman. She's probably pretty. And, and he looks and he, first of all, he's a beautiful young woman. He sees her working. He asks his men, he says, Who's, whose woman is that? Whose young woman is that? And whose servant? And, and they say, well, that's Naomi. That's Naomi's girl. She's, she's Maklon's widow. She's in, in her clothes of mourning, and, and he is immediately drawn to her. He is immediately connected. Because he says, I, I've heard, I've heard about you. I've heard that you left your people. You left everything, and you came to a dead-end road just to help her out. You put her above yourself. You took the risk of never finding a husband, of coming to a, a people who don't know you, who don't like you, who don't accept you. And, and he, he was attracted to that. Because it's, it's, it is attractive, isn't it? It's just attractive. That, that type of love, it, it draws us in, and, and that's the story of God. And, and you come in and you see the people, the people are amazed by it, and they bless Boaz and they bless Ruth by asking God to bless her like Rachel and Leah, Leah and Tamar. He says, Blessed be the Lord who's not left you this day without a Redeemer. May His name be renowned in Israel. Um, and, and they say, may the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. These are the wives of, of, of Jacob. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. And by the way, if you look and you look at those names, you see, you know what? Those are really messed up families. And he's saying, you know what, in the story of God, there's redemption and there's restoration. And, and now that um, <clears throat> it brought out the best in the crowd, and Ruth was no longer the Moabite. Ruth now was one of them. Ruth had been brought into the nation of Israel as one of the people of Israel. And now she was the wife of, of Boaz, and she was one of the people. And they were saying, we want her to be one of the women of, of high esteem in our culture and in our history and in who we are. And she's anchored firmly in the story of God. And, and she's from the house of David. And she will... And, and from the house of David will come the Son of God, the true Redeemer. I mean, this is how it's all going to flesh out. And we can look at that and see it in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. It says, Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus 
the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And, and so it comes in and says, look, we've, we've, we've been there. We were on the other side of the tracks. Now we're on the right side of the tracks. Jesus has done it for us. He has redeemed us. He has restored us. So let's, let's run a strong race and leave the other stuff behind and keep our eyes focused on Christ. And as we come in and, and wrap up this thing, you may wonder, you say, well, how's my life making a difference? I mean, seriously, do you know what I've done? Do you know the, the things that, that are in my past? You don't know the things that are in my past. You, that's easy for you to say, well, look, Here's the deal. For a Moabite to be put into the lineage of Christ, that's over the top. Nothing you've done tops that. Nothing. You've not done anything to top that. Just go study that one a little bit. Go back in, into the first five books of the Old Testament and, and read through and, and look at what they, they say about Moabites. It's not good. It's not a pretty story. And... <clears throat> When we look at that, we, you know, we, we think, you know, how can my life make a difference? And, and when we look at the story of Ruth, we can easily see, we can easily see that God can make a difference in anybody's life. Look, you can read the book of Ruth in five minutes. Five minutes. It doesn't take long at all. It's four short chapters. It's quick. It's a quick, easy read. But it took place over ten years. In, in just a few words, they've pulled out over 10 years of these people's lives. Their comings, their goings, their dyings, their highs and their lows. And Ruth had a lot of difficult years. But it's easy to look at this book and see that even in those difficult years, God was at work. God was working in her life. God was working to redeem and restore her. God was drawing her to himself, and God did it. And, and so um, she probably wondered during all this time, you know what? Why is this happening to me? Why? Why is this? I love that boy. I married him. I came into his family. I've loved his mama. I loved her like she was my own. I left my own family to love her. And now I'm in Bethlehem and I'm starving to death and I'm having to pick up scraps out in the field. Why is that? Don't you think she had some of those thoughts going through her head? Don't you think that after 10 years of waiting, she wondered, what's going to happen to me? How about Naomi? We already know. She just said, my life's bitter. I was full, but now I'm bitter. Just call me bitter. You see, Ruth had a lot of tough years, and she probably wondered, what's, what's going to be written about me in history? She didn't even wonder that because she figured she didn't have a history. That's what she wondered. But look at how her story turned out. You see, she didn't even live to see the biggest parts of the story. Look, we, we read the story, and it says, Ruth gives birth to Obed. 
And then Ruth, she's not even in the story, really, after the first few sentences of, of uh, chapter 4. She just drops out. It all goes back to Naomi again. The story drops Ruth, picks up Naomi, and, and then it, they, they're telling Naomi, look, look at what's happened in your family. Look at how it's all come out. Look at how it's all going. But, but in the midst of it all, if, if you look at it all, here's the deal. In the midst of all of it, in all of that length of time, in all the difficulties, in everything bad that was going on, God was at work. God was at work as the Redeemer. And that's who He is. And God was at work loving people unconditionally, not because of what they had to offer Him, not because of what they had done, but because they were created in His image and they were the object of His love. Pure and simple. He, didn't, he does not love us because we can do anything for us. He just loves us. He just loves us because He is love. And, and that is the way it is. So look at how her story turned out. She didn't see the biggest parts of the story. You know, having that son, having that son Obed, that was huge. That was off the charts. That was, that was like the biggest thing that happened in Bethlehem in a long time. And it pales in comparison to the rest of the story. In the rest of the story, we study and we see and we look and, and we can look at it today and see it 3,200 years later. We see we've been redeemed by Jesus. And Ruth is firmly entrenched in the story of God because Ruth is the great-great-grandmother of David. And God spoke to David and promised David, said, you will always have an heir on the throne. And that heir on the throne, that, 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 that king that God spoke of to David is King Jesus who comes from the lineage of Jesus. And if you go back and you read in Matthew or Luke, what you'll find is you'll find the names of the people who are in that lineage. And you know what name you're going to find? Ruth. Boaz. Obed. Jesse. David. <clears throat> and we, we can see that but in the midst of it all, as, as you look at it all today, you know what the hard thing for us to do is to stop in the story because you see, when, when I look at 10 years in time, um, that's a long time. Now, 10 years doesn't seem as long to me as it used to. I don't know why that is. But it doesn't. But when I was 10 years old, I thought it was forever. But, but the thing about it is, 10 years is a long time. You can live a lot of life in 10 years. Ten months can be a really long time. But isn't it great that God promises us that He's with us? That Jesus said He'll never leave us, He'll never forsake us. That He'll be with us on the peak of the mountain in the valley of the shadow of death. That He walks with us, He promises to be with us. And, and as we come to it, that He offers us the ability to be a part of his story and to come into the story of God and to do things that will impact eternity. You see, that's, that's what unconditional love did in the life of Boaz. That's what it did in the life of Ruth. And it's not to say that the other kinsman in there was some evil, wicked, nasty guy. He's never portrayed that way. He's just portrayed as an average guy. But I would say that maybe we don't want to be average. Maybe we want to be people of unconditional love. Maybe we want to be people who exhibit Hesed 
love, unconditional love to the people around us, to love people not expecting something in return, but to love them just because they're people created in the image of God and they're worthy of dignity and respect because of that. And in doing so, that, that we look at it and we say, you know what, we don't know what's going to happen in this life, but 3,000 years from now, when we're sitting around the throne of Jesus, we're going to see stuff playing out that we go, wow, never had any idea, never had any idea what was going to happen. But look at that. Look at what God has done. And I mean, ultimately, um, what better thing could happen, right? Because this world will soon be gone for all of us. But eternity lasts forever. And the things that we do in the story of God make an impact through all time. So how will you love others today? How will you love them unconditionally and trust God to do the rest. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the blessings that you have poured out on us. Father, for the love that you have for us that's not based on, on our worth or our abilities or our potential or, or anything else that um, really is nothing, but instead it's based solely upon the fact that you created us in, in your image, that you love us unconditionally. And that your love is based on Jesus, not on us. That our hope is based on Jesus and not on our abilities, but based upon what he did for us on the cross when he redeemed us, when he bought us back, when he took our sin and shame and made us holy and blameless in your sight. Father, we pray that you would help us to love you more, to love the people around us unconditionally. And Father, to exhibit the type of love that draws other people to you. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as, as Lucas leads us?
uh, some sign-ups out there to get involved helping the nursery and the uh, toddlers. We're going to need some help in that. If you, you'd like to volunteer for that, Analia will set you up. So I'm looking forward, forward to that. And we're going to close now in a word of prayer. Don, would you lead us, please? Yeah.